This week, I'm back in Minneapolis hanging out with brewers from Lake Monster. Their names are Matt and Matt, and they are probably two of the most entertaining people I've had on this show. They give tons of advice on how to open a brewery combined with witty banter and one-liners. There's also a pretty good conversation here about the industry in general and everyone's place in it. Give it a listen this week on Washington Beer Talk. I'm the Cycling Cicerone. This is Matt and Matt for Lake Monster Brewery in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I'm Matt Lang, uh, founder brewmaster at Lake Monster Brewing, along with my two business partners, uh, Matt Zanetti and Jeremy Maynard. So you so got two mats. The, two mats, I know, yeah. So I'm I'm the brewer Matt, he's the operations, and then Jeremy's sort of the numbers guy, does the spreadsheets, good good kind of three-legged stool. Um, yeah, I uh, so it's, it's interesting, the podcast thing. So I got started in a beer um, when I was in college. So I'm from Minneapolis originally, went to UW-Madison for school, and uh, there's a little bit of beer drinking going on over there. A you may have, may have heard of that. But uh, I started homebrewing with a couple of my roommates, in college and got just like really super into it. I, early on we won the local uh, wine and hop shop has a, a stout contest every year and uh, we got best in show and that was sort of, you know, ignited the fire. Yeah. Um, I worked at a coffee shop at the time and so I made an espresso stout where I just pulled 16 double shots of espresso into a cup and then dumped them right into the, the batch at the end of the boil so I had like a super strong coffee yeah. flavor, which if you try to scale that up, I've done the math, it's like, no, not, it's, it, you know, You'd have to spend several hours with a few dedicated baristas pulling shots of espresso. Um, I've talked about potentially doing it, but uh, it would be a collaboration that would require some uh, <laughs> some dedication. But yeah. But anyway, so we were home brewing, and I actually was um, a DJ at the student radio station. I actually worked there. It was the, the heck was my title? Production director. I made like PSAs and promos and stuff. Oh. And. Uh, during the summer, there's a lot of open air time, and I was just sitting around with my two homebrew buddies, like shooting shit, talking about beer for a while. I'm like, we should just do this on mic once a week. And so we actually did a radio show and podcast weekly, Beer Talk Today. Oh. And uh, we did it for two years. Um, we talked to basically mo- mostly just people around the Midwest, everybody in Wisconsin you can think of, you know, Dan Deb Carey at New Glarus, Dean at Ale Asylum. Um, you know, we talked to John Hall from Goose Island, Larry Bell from Bell's Brewing, Todd at Surly when they had been open for like a year, you know, all yeah, these yeah, yeah. early, you know, and this is way back in, you know, 2007, 2008 when yeah. there were only 2,000 breweries instead of 4,000 in the country. Yeah. And so it was yeah, easier to get a hold of people and the, the, the list was shorter. But, um, but yeah, so that's, that's how I got even more interested in it and learned a lot about the industry and sort of the behind the scenes stuff. Like I'm sure you're getting a nice preview into these interviews and uh, when I graduated in 2009 with degrees in journalism, mass communication and English literature, uh, you might remember there was a little uh, economic slowdown kind of happening. Oh, just back a bit, yeah. Then. yeah. Yeah. No one was beating down my door offering me writing jobs. So I just, I had this Rolodex of, of people I knew and I was super interested in brewing. So I sent out a bunch of emails saying, hey, if there's any openings, I'll scrub your floors, I'll clean kegs and do whatever. And one guy got back to me and that was Dean at Ale Asylum. And so I got a job there and I, I worked there for a while, just kind of learned from the bottom up, you know, worked on the bottling line and scrubbed the floors and cleaned the kegs and did all that stuff and, and uh, you know, learned everything I could there working at a, at a fast growing, at that time, especially fast growing production brewery. You know, I had a 15 barrel system like ours and they were, they were cranking out 10,000 barrels a year. And now they moved on, they've got a bigger facility with a 60 barrel brew house and 
I don't even know what they did. Probably upwards of 25, 30. I'm not even sure where they're at these yeah, days. Yeah. But you know, they now they're in Illinois and Minnesota. And at the time they were just in Madison, Milwaukee, basically. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and then uh, I worked there for a while, and then uh, it, uh, got approached by um, connected with my two business partners from a, a mutual friend. You know, they they had a lot of uh, ideas and, and energy and interest in getting into the business, but they didn't know how to make beer, so they needed somebody for that end of things, and got hooked up, and here we are. So that that was so you were making your radio show in 2007, <laughs> and then seven, eight, nine, yeah. Okay, and then uh, let's see, and at that time you were home brewing, mm-hmm. and then so now ten years later, you've got this brewery. How yeah. long has this been around? When did you start? So, when did those gears start turning? Well, the gears started turning a lot sooner than we started brewing beer. You might have heard that story before. But, um, I mean, we started working on, they had been working on a business plan, and I don't even know how long before I came along. But we got introduced in 2012. And then we actually started, before we had this facility, we uh, brewed another facility for a little while. Um, Sand Creek, out in Wisconsin. Um, Fulton had started there, and they had left so there's some capacity and we kind of swooped in oh, okay. their last batch of lonely blondes in the tanks so my first batch of pilsner went in oh um but uh uh yeah so we did that so that was 2013 so it was october 2013 i remember that because no, it was august 2013 and i remember that because the very first kegs were actually at my wedding which was in september of 2013 so it's easy to remember we had a couple kegs at the reception our first batches of IPA and pills. Right on. But, um, and so then, yeah, and the whole time the plan was to get our own facility, get the tap room up and running. And so the tap room opened uh, December of 2015, which was much later than we'd planned. But uh, as these things go, we signed a lease in July of 2014 after months of negotiation. And at the time, this building you're looking at, um, you know, it looks pretty nice now. Still very industrial, but it was it was a pit. There were no windows. Um, oh. There's you see the space heaters up there. Mm-hmm. That was the only heating or cooling. There's no HVAC. There's no electric. All the lights are run by extension cord off the building next door. The parking <laughs> lot was a pit, a gravel pit that we found out later was filled with diesel fuel and asbestos. So that was fun. Um, the floor was. I mean, there was nothing. There was no. There's no drains. The drains on the floor were just uh, French drains. There's no sewer. No water nothing it's just a raw empty space so it took you know over a year to get everything done and our landlord did a majority of the work on the site with uh, the patio and the, and the parking lot and they did all the windows they did the floors they brought the HVAC electric sewage to our building and then we had to distribute it from there um, but yeah so it, it, it took quite a while but then it was December 2015 we opened the tap room and there was a brief period of time where we were doing kegs here and still doing package product out of Sand Creek and then we got our own uh, canning up and running here yeah. So, yeah. I was just exploring a little bit and I saw back there you guys do have your own like big old canning line. You do. It's, yeah. The, the footprint makes it look bigger than it is. Yeah. But it's, it's yeah, it works pretty well. We, we did use the, a mobile canning line for a little bit yeah. to, get, to get started. But yeah, again, just as you get more money, you get more equipment. The, the canning line itself, that's a huge expense. It costs a lot more than a bunch of fermenters. <laughs> so, yeah. there's this. There's, there's, it's the reason you see mobile uh, operations floating around because they yeah. there's a need for them. But yeah, but then you lose some margin. So we we're you know hoping to get our, our own and just the flexibility, not having to schedule stuff out four weeks in advance. Yeah, helps a lot too. But mm-hmm. yeah. Um. So how big is this? How, how big is your brew house here? So we got a 15 barrel system. Okay. Um, we started with four 30 barrel fermenters, two 15s, 
15 barrel bright, 30 barrel bright. And then once we started canning, we added two 90 barrel fermenters. So that's six turns to fill it. Mm. And then uh, we got two more 90s. So now we got four 90s. Wow. So yeah, we got a lot of capacity. Yeah. Um, See, he said this would happen. You're going to show up in the middle. We'll have to start over all Howdy, the introductions. We're just going to sit here and listen and drink. I'm uh, one of the founders. Oh, the other Matt. The other Matt. <laughs> right on. Cool. It's good if you say your name so that when they hear your voice, they know who it is. Matt, Matt. <laughs> Matt, Matt. Uh, let's see. So he's the head brewer, Matt. You're the operations, Matt. What kind of stuff do you do, operations, Matt? I answer a lot of emails. I deal with... All our, a lot of our vendors that aren't brewery specific. Um, we lease our space, so I manage the property management company. And then I, Matt and I collectively both can manage our sales people. And then I manage the tap room manager who manages all the staff in the tap room. Oh, okay. So he deals with all the bullshit I don't want to deal with, basically. Yeah, yeah. that's essentially true. <laughs> and so that he, so that Matt can be left to do the most important thing here, which is make awesome beer. Right on. How did you decide that you wanted to open a brewery? The story I've heard so far is that you guys, you and Jeremy, decided you wanted to open a brewery and had everything you needed or you know, thought you had everything you needed except for a brewer and then found him. That's so, more or less correct. Yeah. I approached Jeremy, um, he's my, also my brother-in-law, at a family holiday party. He's like, hey, I want to start a brewery. You want to start a brewery with me? He operates as like our CFO. Yeah. So all the financial stuff. I mean, we all we're all involved with all the different parts, but he all the bookkeeping, all that stuff. He makes sure it all gets done. So it's great. <laughs> I don't have to write any checks. Yeah. What made you decide this was a plan, a good plan, make a brewery? I mean, it was five years ago. That's the short answer. Yeah. <laughs> be, wouldn't be a good idea now. Sorry. Well, yeah. Sorry, listeners. People are still. They're still doing it, God bless them. The writing was on the wall after the Surly Law passed so that you could have a tap room. Do you know the history of that? A little bit, so I know. Which maybe back up, he's from we'll Seattle. Yeah, no. So please. there's, in 2011 there were 30 breweries in the state, now there's almost 150. And the reason is, used to be you couldn't have, this was illegal, you couldn't have a tap room. So you're either a brew pub, which meant that you could um, you know, have a restaurant, liquor license, all that stuff. You have multiple locations, but the only you can only sell your beer at your own locations. You couldn't sell beer off sale at liquor stores or to other bars. The only way you, people could have your beer not in one of your restaurants is in a growler. That's it. If you're a production brewery, then you can sell the bars and liquor stores, but there's no front of house allowed at all. There's no direct to consumer, no growlers, nothing. So certainly wanted to build their big show up the road, which you're going to see tomorrow. It's Slightly more impressive than this place. Um, and, uh, you know, basing it on like Stone and other places around the country that did these really cool restaurant tap rooms, or they called it a destination brewery. And so they just made their plan public, said, here's what we want to do. It's not legal. Let's change the law. And it, they changed it like that year, which was faster than they anticipated. But so almost overnight, you started seeing little tap rooms pop up, just like I, I know they have in Seattle and all sorts of places. Um, everything from, you know, 1,000 square foot little five barrel system, you know, neighborhood taproom things to stuff like this. But having the direct to consumer just makes it a lot easier for people to start up because you're getting uh, cash flow right away without having this to get all these new accounts started when you start up. Um, and you're, you're getting better margins because you're going direct to consumer. So, 
Yeah. So that was a big thing. 2011 was a big turning point because that's when that law changed. So. One of the things I've noticed in Seattle, so we don't have like an equivalent to the Surly Law. It's been long at our Surly Bill or Surly Law, whatever you guys like to yeah, call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We don't really have an equivalent to that. We sort of... It's kind of a little slow and steady. Yeah, we've, we've sort of had that that's been a, allowed for a while and you know what honestly maybe i need to go back and talk to some brewers about that because most of the brewers i talk to haven't been around long enough to remember a law change yeah yeah that yeah change well the there's game. been a huge spike everywhere it's yeah. not ju- i mean you know i go i have my in-laws live in milwaukee and every time i go back there's like a thousand and they already had a bunch of breweries they had more breweries to start with yeah because the laws were more flexible to begin with but there's still a bunch that have opened i mean we've gone from 2,000 breweries in the country to 4,000 in what yeah. was like last five years i mean that's not yeah that's it's insane. not just minnesota changing a law yeah um but here it was even more noticeable there were even sort of fewer to begin with uh, i think like i said there were 30 and most of those were brew pubs yeah i mean there were only a handful of real production breweries summit and surly were kind of and, and shell august shell kind of being the, the granddaddies that were there before. <laughs> Certainly being granddaddy, they've been around for 12 years. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> but they, no, that's the but they were definitely that's a pioneer. Kind of Asia that is we're old now, so we've been around for like five years. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah, it's so weird that that's the way that is. The, the breweries I talked to in Seattle that are all... In Seattle, we've got like a lot of much smaller breweries. A lot yeah. of the breweries I've talked to here are like are your scale. The 15-barrel yeah. brew house is sort of the minimum that I've seen, whereas... A lot of the breweries in Seattle sort of cap out of that ten. They buy that ten, and then they they really only brew, you know, once a week. They're they're not they're not really spitting out that much that much beer. So yeah. even though Seattle's got you know sixty in the city. Uh, yeah, they're they're all so much smaller. And you guys have I've noticed you go to liquor stores and you can find all this you know all a lot of different beers. Yeah, and uh, or at least in some of the liquor stores. Um, I was wondering if you know like if if. Something about the laws, you know, the, obviously the Surly Law helped, but it all it did was set you on an even keel with Seattle as far as I sure. know. Sure. Um, so what happened there that, like, what, what's maybe enabling your breweries to be a little larger than some well, of the I breweries think in Seattle? There definitely are a lot of smaller breweries, too. There are a lot of ones, you know, tap rooms, like, like the way you described, and there's getting to be more and more. Mm. But I think it's, it's just that, like, uh, like I said, laws are so restrictive. You know, there was, there was Summit who's real big. Shell, who's real big, and then Surly, who kind of came behind him. But then there wasn't anything else. We were, we were, we were like the biggest secondary market for all these national. We were a huge market for Bells and Deschutes and Stone and all these out-of-state brands. So there was a lot of room for more in-state packaged products and stuff to come out. So I think there was kind of a scramble to get stuff on shelves and, and get uh, um, your brand started and to do it a little bit bigger as opposed to a place that's had a whole bunch of breweries for, for 30 years that have actually grown pretty big. And obviously, you know, the Pacific Northwest, between Oregon and Washington, there's there's plenty of big breweries too. Um, but I will I would, will say in the last year or two, it's definitely been, there's been a few that have opened up with big ambition, but there's a lot that are more like the one brewery in this suburb that's just gonna be a tap yeah. room and growlers and crowlers and that's it. Yeah, the or Starbucks the, corner brewery. You know? Yeah, kind of, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, there's the, the classic one that everybody kind of wants to model on. Have you been a Dangerous Man I in have. the Northeast? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, so that, you know, they brewed, we brewed more than them last year, but not that much more. And yeah. they well, didn't sell a drop that wasn't direct to consumer. I mean, it's all growlers, yeah. crowlers, and then they're tapping, that's it. They don't yeah. sell to bars, they don't sell anywhere. Hmm. And they did like 2,000 freaking barrels like that. It's crazy. Yeah. I think they have a 10-barrel system or a 7-barrel system. I mean, okay, wow. Yeah. Um, so they crank stuff out and it's all direct to consumer. And so people are, 
There's definitely people trying to copy that model and be like the dangerous man of this area. Um, but then, yeah, the, the, I think the first wave after the bill changed, there was a lot of people who were looking at a production model with a tap room. And now it's getting to be more towards what you're what you're talking about. Okay, I would say, yeah, that makes sense. And so now that you're kind of you're maybe reaching, you're saturating certain markets, uh, yeah, that kind yeah. of stuff. Okay, the conversation it's, I've had. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's 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 getting. I think there's there are a lot of newer breweries still that have a lot of ambition to get packaged product on shelves, and that's getting that's that's getting more crowded. Mm-hmm. Like yes, yeah. it's a liquor store with a lot of cooler space yeah um you, if you start a brewery today you're, you're not just going to get shelf space because you're local like it needs to be good mm-hmm. product. which is different i mean when we started if we went into a liquor store with our two skews the answer was yes like pretty much every time unless yeah. it was the tiny place yeah and now that's just not the case because there's so many other breweries out there fighting for that shelf space so it's crazy that that change happened in five years oh yeah you know, or less and yes. um like what? What's next, right? Like right now, like right now, I'm thinking, God, we, I, I started this podcast this year, and this is the story I've heard. Actually, okay, so I've heard, I've, I've basically heard the future version of your story in Seattle, and then like not your story, but like the, you know, the Minnesota story, it was a Washington story from five years ago, right? Yeah. Like that's so like maybe that is kind of and where what that's happened. going. So well, what ended up happening is you've got a handful of regional breweries, like you know, uh, the. Summit and Surly are in Seattle. Now, they're not in Seattle, but we've got uh, Georgetown, Mac and Jacks, and Fremont. And uh, we had a lesion for a while, then I got bought out, and now, yeah. like, yeah, like, ugh, well, we can get into that later, but ow. So I don't count <laughs> them. Um, but, like, yeah, we've got three or four, like, really big breweries. And then sort of the next top ten locations are for anybody who can, like, who anyone who can brew more than 2,000 barrels in a year yeah. you know, can come in and take one of those top 10 biggest breweries in Washington. There's slots. a big, yeah, there's a big gap. We, I just saw, what was it? Minneapolis Business Journal, I think, had a list of like 25 biggest breweries in the state. Oh, yeah. We we're, were 19. We're on the list. Woohoo! Yeah. Yeah. But there's like they a huge a gap. Thing, they want me to buy a plaque. I know. <laughs> like, I'm we're not, not gonna we are number 19. 19. <laughs> we are number 19. <laughs> Better than 20. Um, oh, any, 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 yeah. Anyone that comes in, and this ha- doesn't... I feel like it kind of comes in, there'll be spurts of where people will come in and be like, I want to start a brewery. Would you mind like sharing some thoughts and knowledge? And we're obviously, we're absolutely like anything that'll make your process easier than ours was. My first question is, is can I talk you out of it? If the answer is no, yeah. then let's talk. You need a, a time machine and $10 million. Yeah. <laughs> That's Matt's pat answer. But what we, but we, what we collectively say and agree upon is if like, if we were going to do this today, like I would... Find a building in Kingfield. It's a yeah. neighborhood in South Minneapolis. Um, I was looking at that. You know that Brewers Bagels on Nicollet? That old fire station? That thing is sweet. That would be a sweet yeah. brewery. So we basically get a <laughs> get a seven barrel from get a seven barrel system, two fourteen barrel fermenters for your IPAs, and then like four more seven barrel fermenters after that. And just be like, I'm, my place holds 120 people. Make sure you have a private room patio. for private events. Make sure you have a patio. Hopefully, you have some parking. You notice these things that we have here. These are the these patio are the, the, parking. The, the recipes for for success. Like we we host a lot of big things because our tap room can hold 360 people. We have 120 seats on our patio. Things like that. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be this big though. I would yeah. say if it's the neighborhood model. Yeah, but find a niche neighborhood. We need to find a space that we can put big tanks in. Yeah. 
can't do that in a lot of these small neighborhoods. Or as Matt said, like now there's there's a, a brewery in Prior Lake. There's a brewery in Shakopee. Brewery Dina. Dina. Wooden Soul. Yeah. So you just every little town on Lake Minnetonka is having their own brewery. Their own every little brewery. tourist town. I was just my my parents my, have a cabin in Crosby, Minnesota, which is great mountain bike trails, by the way. No. Um, just rode those the other day. Um, but yeah, it's like 2,000 people, but it's kind of, they have mountain bike trails and stuff, so it's kind of a little tourist town. They've got a little brewery with a five-barrel system. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, it's it's just being the local place. Yeah, if I had to start brewery today, that's what I would do. I wouldn't go to package product. I wouldn't go big. Unless I had $10 million and I could have a fleet of salespeople from day one and I didn't really need to make money for a long time. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> okay. That's as, a... as some of the other as some startups other, around yeah. here. Are yep. able to do. Real, oh, what do you mean? Like there are other breweries that have ten uh, million dollars we, right now. Well, we were, I'm guessing we're, we're much more of a of a hand to mouth like right. bootstrap. You know, we yeah, none of this like everything. huge capital investment loans or whatever you guys are trying to. Or maybe you will have. Oh, we got a lot of that, loans. But, yeah, we got yeah. some loans, but you're definitely taking it easy. We didn't have ten million dollars to start it with. Yeah, you're not like Lagunitas, you know, leveraging everything to gain, you know, to risk it all kind of move. No. Okay. No. But so you you you're you're saying you're going to go on to say oh no there's definitely people who just you can see from the equipment they got the number of salespeople they have when they start and just the way they they roll it out like yeah they had some they had millions some of serious millions serious of dough we we did not is anyone for like as an example you're comfortable saying I don't know if I want to call anybody out yeah on, in a public forum but yeah okay because there's no there's no harm. What they're doing. If we had millions of dollars, I would have been like, hey, I've done the same thing. Us, yeah. 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 Huh. But okay. it's just, if you're fortunate to have that kind of capital backing, then go for it. It's going to make everything a whole lot easier. Yeah. I mean, Best way to make a million dollars selling beers is to start with 10. It's true. <laughs> oh, man. It's true. Well, damn it. Um, I don't have $10 million. No. Nope. And it's, we're, we're living proof that you don't need that to be successful, but. Yeah. Yeah. But you do need a time machine. <laughs> that would be helpful. That would be helpful. Or just or just go small. Yeah, I mean, I think that seven to ten barrel system is a good yeah. good way to go if you find an area that's that's you know lacking in, in something like that. Yeah, and, and you can still distribute. I mean, Dangerous yes. Man is an example. Like, I mean, he just sells so much beer in his place. He doesn't need to. He doesn't need to. But if you are that brewery in Prior Lake or not a meat eye or some other suburb. Can sell cakes a handful of bars. Six other bars in town. You know, be friends with everybody. You know, like that's that's a good model. Yeah, I definitely. Think. Okay, the hyper local model is something I've heard embraced before or recommended before. Yeah. Um, you guys remember Bend, Oregon, right? Like that city. That, oh sure. Like was yeah. super famous for having so many breweries. Yeah. Like four years ago. Yeah. And now. It's still just got like, you know, it's got 12 or 15 or whatever, some number of breweries, which is fine, but it's not like an impressive number of breweries. Not anymore. anymore. No, yeah. it's crazy. <laughs> that's that's kind of funny. That, I don't know. I hadn't really thought of that before, but that popped into my mind and I thought, yeah. Anyway, um, let's see. So, or, or, I'll speak at the hyper-local thing. O Oregon's a good example because there are so many breweries of all sorts of sizes. Um, my brother lives in Portland. Um, he got married in Hood River. So we're in Portland, go to the liquor store, spears from kind of all over Oregon, but mostly near Portland. Go to Hood River, go to the liquor store, 
there's beer from breweries like in Central Oregon that you didn't can't find in Portland. Post wedding, we go to the coast, um, Manzanita. Go to the liquor store there. There's beers from breweries all up and down the Oregon coast. It was like, it was it was amazing to see. It's like it's that's it was hyper local. Like the, yeah. the beer that you could easily get at Hood River, you didn't see on the coast. Yeah, and these are like two hours away from each other. Yeah, it's not far. It's yeah, like, yeah, Hood River is about forty-five to Portland. The coast, Manzanita, is about an hour from Portland. Yeah, so it's like not even two hours. Right. It's cool. It was really cool to see. That and is, lots of bombers. Yeah, lots of bombers. It's hard to. Yeah, not here. Yeah. No one bought. Our distributor is like, is he's don't put anything in a bottle. You guys have that. Your weird, weird rule is you don't get to make bombers, right? You got to make seven fifty milliliter. You know, like that's if you're bottles. selling it behind the bar. Here. If oh. you're selling it direct, yeah. Gotcha. You can still no. Make we bombers. can fill twenty two ounce bottles. Okay. Fill it up, but, but yeah, we can't sell them here. Yeah. Gotcha. You can do for whatever reason. Like that's the line. Yeah. Anything smaller than seven fifty is not legal to sell direct to consumer. Huh. Yeah, so weird. Really odd. They've been, they tried to change that so we could do bombers, and that did not pass. The distributors squeezed. Oh, the distributors. They squeezed. want as much control as they can get. Yeah. So good grief. Oh yeah. Um, would you say that? So here in Minnesota, you guys can have. You have to sell to liquor stores, right? Like uh, you can't sell to grocery stores. Um, no. Or you know gas stations or whatever. In Seattle, you can buy beer yeah. basically anywhere. Nope. Um, liquor here stores. just liquor stores. A Would lot you... of grocery stores will have like a liquor store attached to it. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. It's Would... a separate entrance and a separate checkout and everything. Yeah. Would you say that that is like generally helpful? I mean, you, you don't have anything to compare it to necessarily, but uh, like, is that a good thing? You can only sell, you sell liquor stores, you have fewer points of contact, you know, you don't have to... You don't have to know every gas station manager. You know? I don't think it would help the small guys that much. I think it would probably help Summit and Surly because they'd be in every gas station. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like you go to Wisconsin and New Glarus, not only are they in every single gas station on I-94, they have a freaking display. Mm. Like They're like Wisconsin beer, Wisconsin beer, Wisconsin beer, you know, and the Miller's in the cooler and that's fine. But uh, so like that, that would help the handful of people who can get into those accounts probably sell more volume, but I don't know. Yeah, we, I don't know about grocery stores. I mean, it would probably just mean fewer liquor stores because like there's, people are going to buy the same amount of booze and then there's just going to be the infrastructure created to sell that much booze. You know what I mean? There's like X amount of liquor store yeah. that can be, you know, if, if we legalize selling beer at grocery stores, a bunch of liquor stores would just go out of business probably. Hmm. I think it probably wouldn't make that much difference. Okay. Um, my guess. Yeah, that seems no. fair. There's a ton of mom and pop liquor stores that would, like, there's like four in my neighborhood. Yeah. And if Cub if, started being, the Cub Foods is a big grocery store, started being allowed to sell liquor and wine and beer, mm-hmm. I mean, I, they'd probably all close. Yeah. Yeah. There was this one liquor store I remember in Seattle. So when I moved to Seattle, they had just changed that rule. It used to be liquor stores there as well. And they had just changed it right when I moved there a year before. And it was this mom and pop liquor store that was hanging on by a thread, and I don't think it's there anymore. It's one of those ones that, like, they made a new law that made it so, uh, like, every handle or whatever, if you bought a fifth of vodka or whatever, it cost $6. There was a $6 flat tax on top of it. So liquor is extremely expensive in, in Washington. And uh, these people decided it was a good idea to put the full price, you know, taxes included on their price tags in the liquor store. And nobody would shop there because they, they, didn't, they didn't notice that right. this 30% price increase was just the tax Across they'd the already board, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was 
Yeah. But so that and like I'm originally from Texas, and Texas still does have liquor stores and you do all kind of stuff. Liquor stores that are closed on Sunday, like you guys are, th- thankfully free of that. Now. Just changed that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was annoying. We are working through that prohibition era stuff, you know, these days, like finally getting rid of it. But it takes about a hundred years. Yeah. yeah. What's up with that? That's, isn't isn't it still? Is it Utah still beer can't be over like six percent or something? Something like that. Yeah. If, if, if there's anyone that does that, it's Utah. I think it's Utah. I think yeah. they're the same guy. They also have the same rule as you guys, where you can't go above three. Like you guys have 3.2 percent alcohol you can sell in the grocery. That's store. at the grocery store. Do yeah. you guys mess with that at all? Do you have any 3.2s? I no. I haven't heard any crap breweries messing with that. No. I've thought about it, but then it would just be a whole. Like our distributor doesn't deliver yeah. to liquor stores. I don't know. It'd be a whole other challenge. I don't know if you can make a good. Yeah, like an English mild ale or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if people I, will go for it. There's no market. I don't think so. Yeah. You have to create the market. Buy beer in the gas stations. I have no idea why they do that. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. Um, are there any beers in those stores? Does Budweiser make the 3.2? Yeah, all the big guys do. Okay. Yeah. For is, that. It, is it just a completely different beer? Is it just like Bud Light Light? You I've know, never like, had one. Yeah? No. Huh. Lived your, I lived here most of my life. I've never had a 3-2 beer. I can't think of one. That's so funny. You know what? It's one of those dumb things that I ought to just do while I'm here. You know, like even though I'm here it's talking it's, to the It's interesting. Now I feel like I should try one. Yeah, it's like a I acquired experience. some when I was young. So yeah. I drank a lot of it when I was under 21. <laughs> Friends that worked in gas stations. There you go. Just have to drink uh, about 50% more of it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because what's like what's even Bud Light? You know, it's still three nine or four two. Or yeah, something, something like that. Like that yeah. Yeah. It's not even that much less. Yeah. All right. Let's see. Um, what did this building used to be before you guys moved in here? So it's going to be hard because it's not a visual uh, medium. So we'll see if I can explain. So we're we're sitting in a single story uh, brick building with the um, clad metal roof. And across from what is now a nice courtyard and used to be a pit uh, is a three-story brick building. So that brick building was a mattress factory. In between these buildings was a rail line and this was the railway exchange depot where they would unload all the rail cars. So where these existing windows are were openings that uh, drawbridges would drop down to offload the rail cars into here. Okay. So yeah, this was just the... The, the depot. R- the depot, yeah. And we found all sorts of wacky stuff. So before we signed a lease, it had been used basically for storage for like 80 years. I mean, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot in here. Um, we found lots of rusty mattress springs tucked up against the roof on the outside. Oh, um, weird. Yeah, it was it was dirty and gross. It was really really dirty. I mean, it was com- it was just a shelf. Yeah. There was no there was no plumbing. Yeah, he was, tell- he was telling me about that before yeah, I got here. Yeah, it was all... Mechanicals in. We spent three weeks vacuuming the ceiling. Yep. Two of us on scissor lifts and shop backs. Wow. hundred years of grime and dirt. Oh, good God. It's gross, yeah. Yep. Looks good now. Yeah, it does, sure does. Don't look too close. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's gotten like that really, really good, um, I don't know, warehouse vibe. To, yeah, you know, yeah. So it's a depot. You know, it feels, it feels really cool. Um, let's see... Um, what kind of stuff goes into the into the beer you make? So how did you decide on the recipes you settled on? Well, we started with, um, you know, we wanted to just sort of hit both ends of the spectrum. So we started with the IPA and the Pilsner. Something hoppy, something lighter. 
Um, it's definitely not a light Pilsner. It's on the malty, hoppy side, more towards the Czech style. Um, some American hops in there, but I mean, I don't know. I just, I, I, like I said, I worked at breweries and homebrewed for a long time, and I just had, you know, some recipes in my pocket, and and just kind of went from there. Um, looked for what kind of hops we could get at the time. There was not a shortage, but there was some tight supply on some of the the fancier hops. Um, there is a little bit of citra on the IPA, but it's mostly um, public domain varieties: uh, Cascade, Columbus, um, Crystal. Um, but yeah, we went from there. You know, we we had the dark lager and the session IPA. Again, just trying to kind of round out the portfolio. Um, the dark lager is really fun. It's it's doesn't sell anywhere near what the IPA and the Pilsner do. But whenever we do liquor store tastings, people actually try it. It flies off the shelves. Mm. People people who try it really really like it because um, it kind of is that like dark but not too heavy. Has some nice roast character, some nice small character, but but it's still really clean uh, and easy to drink. So that's a fun one. Um, and then we have a milk stout as well, in nitro. That's not in, in package, but that's uh, year-round on draft. And then from there, we just try to to, to round out the the portfolio. We do a lot of uh, fruit, sour fruit beers. Uh, we don't have one on tap at the moment, although we have the India Pale Goza, which is sort of along those lines, and the sour red. Um, and yeah, just try to do do different stuff, hoppy stuff, fruity stuff, dark stuff, and just kind of you know rotate from there. We have a smash series, yeah. right? So. Yeah, we're on the 10th one is on tap. We're going to keg the number 11 next week. Um, so, yeah, each one is just single malt, single hop. As I'm sure some of the listeners have heard that before. So we, every time we use uh, a different malt variety, different hop variety, although we're starting to repeat malts because you kind of run out. Yeah. But you're not going to run out of hops anytime soon. No. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's just a way to sort of taste individual ingredients and how those contribute to the beer as opposed to, like, you know, blend them a bunch of different malts and hops like you usually get. Um, so that's really fun. Um, yeah, just trying to just trying to have a nice round portfolio and and brew, brew people want to drink. You know, we just came out with our our first summer seasonal was our blood orange IPA, and that sold so quickly we're having to make more of it. Even though it was supposed to be, you know, just a short term thing, it sold out so fast. I've got I got more going right now. Um, yeah, just responding to the market and seeing what people want and, and brewing that basically and just beers that we we like to drink. Yeah, the classic like the American IPA, which is our empty rowboat. IPA are always going to sell sell well. Mm-hmm. Just go to beers. Yeah. For most of the craft drinking market is the American IPA is going to be the style they gravitate towards. But now it's sort of our internal joke about what we're trying to make as we're trying to read the market is what's your what's your favorite beer and it's the new one. Mm-hmm. Whatever's the newest. Two years ago, cloudy beers were bad, and only girls drank fruit beers. Now the cloudiest, fruitiest beer you can make is what the guys with the big beards are drinking. It's you just gotta follow the trend lines, and it's 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 it, it's always gonna be a moving target. But what it is, it does it is part of what makes this business um, challenging but fun. Like it's definitely a challenge. Like with the Blood Orange IPA, like we made a bunch of it, packaged a bunch of it, kegged the rest. Distributor took a bunch of kegs. And then the, the, the patrons here at the tap room drank it so fast. <laughs> it was like 35% of what we were selling. And we have 12 different beers on tap. And it was a third of what we were selling was wow. the blood orange. Yeah. yeah. It just flew. So then in turn, a week 
and a half later, our distributor, our brand manager from our distribution company is like, hey, can we get some more of that? I'm like, like now it's gone. No, <laughs> it's I, gone. you told me how much you wanted, yeah. and I made that plus a little extra for us, and I sent it all to you. But you know, they didn't know how fast it was going to go. And then we got, of course, we got some accounts that got it on tap and wanted to reorder, and there wasn't any left. And it's supposed to be our summer seasonal. It's July, and they're out of it. You know, um, so good problem to have, obviously. But we're just trying to wrangle that and out. figure out what's. How much do we make? When should we run out of it? Should we just make it year round? Should we just whatever, you know, trying yeah. to figure out. Because as soon as you start making things. it year round, then people That's stop drinking. That's not cool it, anymore. Right? That's like, not yeah. new, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's got to be yeah. new, but how many. A long time ago, it was uh, Oberon spells summer, seasonal, was. Um, I went to Happy Gnome and did a beer dinner. Happy Gnome's a crap beer bar just down the way. Did a beer pairing dinner, um, Bells. So they had one of their sales reps there, and he was like, half of the volume that we sell in the state of Minnesota is Oberon. And it's only available for five months during the summer. So some guy put his hands, why don't you make it year round? And he's like, make it year round, people don't get excited about it anymore. So when it comes out, we sell a ton of it. Like, <laughs> and he also said, by the way, um, Two Hearted Minnesota buys more Two Hearted than Michigan does. I'm sure that's not true anymore. Probably not anymore. Five years ago, it yeah. probably was. But it's like yeah. the McRib, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Gotta get it. Gotta get it. Oh, it's gone. <laughs> yeah. Talking with a CPG, Consumer Packaged Goods, um, guy um, uh, works closely with the, our creative team, the head of our creative team, Chris, his buddy Oliver, does Consumer Packaged Goods for large companies like these mm. work for Post, General Mills, like all the way from like, what does the box look like? Where does it go on the shelf? How much are we gonna spend on TV ads? Like all this stuff. And he's brought up this term I had not heard of before specifically called the scarcity model. And in that, per se, like the blood orange, right? we were trying to be like, okay, we got a plan. We're gonna use the scarcity model. <laughs> Which is you make something and people really want it and then it's gone, so when you bring it back, people get really excited about it. Um, the problem is that there's so much good craft beer right now that... To get people really excited is quite a trick. Pretty hard. Because yeah. everybody's coming out with new stuff. doesn't include like passion fruit or uh, Cabernet barrel or <laughs> imperial you know stout I mean? aged in yeah, Templeton rye aged, barrels. Aged in, you know, the, the, the udders of a yak <laughs> in the hills of Nepal. <laughs> and then also somehow tastes good. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so we're still trying to figure that out with the seasonal. We just started canning seasonals, so we're still trying to figure out what the, what the trick is with that. But hmm. I read about a guy, you know, this is some book I read about some dude who opened a nano brewery, hyper local, decided that was a perfect model. He read this, he wrote a book about it on Amazon that I got suckered into buying. You know, I'm Googling, oh, what's cool, how to open a brewery book, buy that. And this dude is self published on Amazon, spent $5 on his story. Whatever. <laughs> Weird. Um, I may have read this book as but, well. Uh, and he talks about this, uh, um, this kvatch he made. And he talks about how he, yeah, just brewed a barrel or two barrels of kvatch. And like you know, just like that Russian like yeah, rye, yeah, yeah. rye beer or whatever. It's become kind of trendy now amongst sour beer yeah. people. Yeah, 
And he had brewed a batch of that and it flew out of the barrels and he sold it all in like a week or a day, you know, something crazy like that. So he said, okay, fuck it. He bought a big new fermenter and he said, this is gonna be my flagship beer. I'm gonna brew all this that I can. And he buys a new fermenter, brews 15 barrels of it. And then not another person there. bought it. Yeah, cause he just had, he had given it to every one of his local customers who liked it. They tried it. They thought it was neat, but they didn't really like it that much. And so they never touched it again. And so yeah. he's got all this kvatch and is like, has to redirect his brewery from this flagship, this one thing he wanted to make and now he can't. So that's a, a point in favor of exactly what we were just talking about. Right. Now it's time for just a quick break while we talk about our sponsors. After the break, Matt and Matt do the lightning round and talk about the last time they cried. And they also get into the Budweiser industry and start talking about how distributors have an invisible hand they use to guide what breweries fail and succeed. Washington Beer Talk is brought to you by Craft Beer of the Month. If you want to send a crate of specially chosen beer for someone's birthday or maybe a holiday, then go to cyclingcicerone.com slash beer club and take a look. That'll take you straight to Craft Beer of the Month's website via my affiliate link. So I get a little bit. Also, you can join the Cycling Cicerone at Vashon Island's Oktoberfest. That's coming up September 22nd, noon until 10, live music. Oktoberfest beers and German food will be there. Admission is $15 and that comes with Fashion Island Brewery Oktoberfest mug. I'll be there co-hosting the event, so come hang out with me. I'd really like that. So here's the lightning round. It's a couple of easy questions, a couple of hard questions, and uh, surprising ones. So I'll just have you guys both answer every question. Uh, how old are both you guys? I had to think about that for a second. 32. <laughs> 42. What is your favorite beer you make here? Excellent. I know what the follow-up is because I used to ask these two questions. Um, my favorite beer I make here is whatever's newest, just like everybody in the market. Um, no, I'm really digging on the, the Juicy Pale, um, kind of that the, the Pale Ale Session IPA, whatever the distinction is between those two things, I'm not totally sure. But um, yeah, it's just nice, real modern hop character, super easy drinking. That's what I'm, that's what I'm into now. I always like a good lager too. I go back to the pills a lot as well. How about you? What about you, Matt? That's a really hard question. Whatever sour fruit beer Matt has made most recently. <laughs> yeah, probably sour red. Sour red? Yeah. It's our first Britannomyces beer. Oh, fun. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we've Mixed culture. We've got 15 moral barrels of it sitting in the fermenter that Matt dumped a whole big jug of. Uh, blackberry juice in many many jugs of blackberry puree so, oh nice yeah oh, pulling that out like probably next week kicking it friday so friday my new favorite beer will be that one <laughs> all right <laughs> blackberry <laughs> um regretfully i can't stick around and try a few more of these i got another interview in 30 minutes but okay uh, um we uh okay next question is what are what is your favorite beer of all time the beer that you have had that turned you into the man you are today. When I was 21 years old, the, the day I turned 21, I went to a Trader Joe's, kind of make your own six pack. Uh, one of the beers in there was Old Rasputin Russian Imperial Stout. I had never had anything remotely like that ever before. Didn't taste like Milwaukee's Best Light. Uh, I did not know beer could taste like that. <laughs> and uh, yeah. That, that definitely was a mind blower. 
Sierra Nevada, extra pale ale. Just, I drank just crap. And then when I dropped out of college and actually had a job, just making money so I could buy more expensive beer. It's just that green box. <laughs> just like the amount of green boxes that I purchased in my younger years. <laughs> kind of frightening. And it's just a great go-to standby. It's a, they, yeah. It's two classic answers. Sierra Nevada was the first craft beer I had, but I had it when I was, before I'd ever had any beer, and I didn't even like beer at all. So I had it and went, oh dear, too much. <laughs> the whole idea of that level of bitterness was like a mind blower, and I thought, great, okay, great, I'll never drink beer ever again. This is horrible. And then here I am today. Um, uh, was that the question you thought I was going to ask? Yeah, we would always ask her, what's the favorite beer that you make and what's your favorite beer that somebody else makes? Okay. So, very close. There you go. Um, and the last question is, when was the last time you cried? Oh, gosh. Uh, his is going to be probably this morning. He cries a lot, I've got yeah, a feeling. Um, no, honestly, so this is a weird answer. It has nothing to do with beer, but I saw uh, the Guthrie Theater's production of West Side Story a couple weeks ago on opening night, and it was the week leading up to it where I was going to get political. Uh, all the family separation at the border shit was going on, and watching that particular play while that was kind of in the back of your mind the whole time was very, very strange. <laughs> Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the, and they could not have planned that. I mean, they've been working on it for a year, obviously, a big production like that. The backdrop was a giant, like, Statue of Liberty tipped on its side. Like, it was not subtle, the yeah. message they were going for. Um, yeah, it, it, that, that hit me pretty hard. I was definitely, and usually not a huge musical guy necessarily, but something about musicals is very vulnerable and very visceral. And yeah. So I cried a little bit. What about you? Uh, yesterday. Ha, not this morning, yesterday. No, right. no, no. So we went some, my wife's best friends uh, lives in L.A. now, but she's uh, pregnant, came back to have a baby shower. Her folks live on Lake Minnetonka. They have a really amazing, like, gross grassy slope down to the lake, super shallow. So water volleyball is, like, her dad's, like, favorite thing in the world. So went out yesterday to play water volleyball, and I had my three-and-a-half-year-old boy on my shoulders while we were playing water volleyball. It was pretty cool. It made me very happy. Aww. And typically when I'm crying, it's because I'm very happy. Yeah. He makes me cry a lot because he does a lot of really cute things. <laughs> Did he have a really good spike? Yeah. No, but I, so he <laughs> held the ball and I punched it out of his hands <laughs> to serve it. <laughs> so that's probably really accurate. <laughs> it gets it over. <laughs> Uh, let's see. So we've talked about a lot of stuff. We let's talk a little bit about Budweiser. Bring around to that. I mentioned it before, so we might as well come back. To sure. It. Um, they're buying up breweries all the time. It's kind of upsetting. Um, I think. I, I think we'll see. I don't know if we'll see a lot more. Honestly. Yeah. It might be towards the end. Maybe one or two. But you think? Yeah, I do. You think that uh, something I was thinking while we were talking about not being able to tell what the hell's happening uh, in terms of like what's going to happen next is. You've got a couple, a couple different ideas of what'll happen, right? Like craft beer is running its cycle where it's blowing up right now. You've got to eventually decide what's really going to sell, how you're going to brew, what you're going to do. You've got the other people who would recommend, and I was talking to somebody else 
um, on this trip actually who was saying, um, you know, don't bother so much with the trends. You know, keep brewing your your good beer that you like, and yeah. don't make a, a hazy uh, glitter beer, and don't make a. Well, you gotta draw the line somewhere. And uh, I never made damn glitter beer. Yeah, and uh, you know, don't do all this stuff. Just stick with what you know. Keep making your good beer, and like you know, the trends come and go, but at the center of it is like all that. Um, yeah, there's a there's a balance there for sure. There's a balance, but I would say you can the, also you can also if if your good beer that you really like is a English amber ale, you know, New Albion didn't last very long. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, you can be, you can be, there's, you don't want to chase trends necessarily, but you want to be dynamic. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be stuck making the same porter you've been making for 30 years, even though nobody drinks porter anymore. Yeah. Because you're going to go out of business real quick. Yeah. You know, if the shoots made nothing but Black Butte and Mirror Pond, they wouldn't be doing nearly as well once they introduced Fresh Squeezed. Yeah. You know, that, yeah. that's if that's not their best-selling beer, it's certainly the only one I see the most. Yeah, it's got to be their best-selling. And beer. it's only been around a couple of years. I mean, yeah. you know, founders introduced there all day, and that's like half their freaking production now. They still make their rye and their you know normal stuff, but you know their Scotch ale. But sometimes you gotta you gotta adapt a little bit. Yeah, the all day. Well, then you got the Session people who p- pays aren't. all the bills yeah. over there. Oh yeah! Oh I'm, yeah! I'm sure. Oh yeah! yeah. <laughs> I don't know exactly, but so you try to like take what we do and scale it, and can imagine what their numbers look like. And yeah, it's like and and good for them. It's a it's a great beer. Man. Yeah, <laughs> it's delicious. If you've got one company that exemplifies the you know, don't bother with trends, stick with what you know, but also it. But also being dynamic, it's Budweiser. They're the ones who say, "Nah, fuck it. We're gonna power through with Bud Light and Budweiser. We're gonna right. stick through with these guys. They got the market share. Let's do it. Let's stick through." But at the same time, you can see them like scared buying craft breweries, trying to stay relevant and do what they got to do. Yeah, to stay as part of that. That's uh, part of it. So what they're doing with buying these craft breweries is what they're going to do is they're gonna try to commodify craft beer, right? So you've got Goose Island, Elysian, Golden Road, Wicked Wart. Uh, or no, Wicked Weed, sorry. Mm-hmm. Wicked Warts and Robinsdale. They're not owned by Budweiser. Um, Wicked, Wicked Weed. Wicked if you're hearing this, no, sorry, you're still Wicked good. Wart. Sorry, Wicked Wart, <laughs> you're legit. Wicked Weed. Um, and they'll let them keep the breweries that they've already got and make funky, weird stuff for their local market so they seem like they're a legitimate craft brewery, and then they'll do what they've done with Goose Island, which is they pull in 312 and their IPA, and they make those Budweiser plants so they can use the economies of scale. Budweiser has these distribution channels Budweiser has, and they... and with they want is that people don't can't tell the difference between one golden ale and one IPA from and nothing from anything and theirs is the cheapest. They want all IPAs to be the fucking same and theirs is the cheapest because they have the economies of scale, they have the distribution network, they have the advertising, they've got all that stuff. That's what they're trying to do. They want to get they want to buy breweries that are on a, a quick growth trajectory, brew, you know, they, they they're selling 100,000 barrels in their local market. And they're gonna buy one in every region, which is why I say I don't know if they're gonna do too many. You know, they got Goose Island in Chicago, they've got uh, they got somebody in this. I mean, Wicked Wart's in North Carolina, I think. I feel yep. like they have somebody else down south, somebody in Texas. Wicked and Weed. I don't remember. Sorry, Wicked Weed. I said we got it wrong. It. Carbock in Texas. Yeah, they got yeah they got one in Texas. They got a California. They got Pacific Northwest. Um, maybe they'll buy something in Colorado if they don't know anything in Colorado already. But like. That's it, and then they go. clog all the distribution lines. I've got a buddy who works for a brewery. I'll, I'll leave names off the table, but um, 
one of their, their, not in the Twin Cities, one of their distributors out state is a butthouse. And he's having a conversation, you know, in the spring about their summer seasonal. Hey, you know, last year you bought X amount. We were thinking with the growth of another brand, you might buy this much this year. And they said, we can't have any, we don't, can't have any of it. I said, why? It's like, well, Budweiser told us if we wanted to get our Bud Light shipment this month that they were going to take this much Goose Island and this much Elysian. And so our warehouse is full of all this crappy stuff that nobody wants. Oh my and we're trying as hard as we can to sell it. But until we get rid of this, we can't take in any other seasonal. Yeah, I think that's, that's that. how they do it. Yeah. And so they're also, when they're, when they're buying these, these, you know, big, but big mid-sized, you know, that I think Old Regional. Road... Was it, they had done about, I think they did, when they got sold, they were 65,000 barrels. But growing quickly. Yeah. That's the key. So they in turn have draft lines all around town in LA. Now, Budweiser owns all those draft lines. So you've got multiple distributors within a market like we do here. Um, So our artisan guys go in and they've got their handful of brands they sell. Hohenstein guy's got his brands they sell. There, there's 20 draft lines at XYZ Bar. So that our distributor does, is not a Bud or Miller house. Basically, all the other distributors have some big... Bud or Miller, big Coors or PBR. National yeah. brands. Mm-hmm. So it's of those 20 handles, how many can I get? Obviously, I want all of them, but I'm probably not going to get all of them because this bar wants to put on brands that I don't carry. But when all the Bud houses now have that brand too, owned by Bud, so you're you're just grabbing more market share. Mm. Like there's X amount of beer sold. Now Budweiser's getting the money from more of those draft lines. Mm-hmm. So ba- like they're not just buying brands; they're buying distributor access to those tap handles, that kind of yep. that kind of stuff. All that yeah. stuff. They're buying draft lines, and then. That brewery now has has been A-listed via V that distributor that is a Bud House. Mm-hmm. Not like you put like you're gonna put the Bud Light on, and you're gonna put whatever well, they have Angry Orchard of whatever crap they have. No, like don't I don't know. No, they have all whatever all yeah, sorts of stuff. This guy have a ton of brands, and now they have one that's already on tap at you know two hundred plus places around LA, I'm yeah. sure of it. I saw it, my brother lives in LA. So yeah. I've been there a bunch of times. Um, a, a, a thing that I hear a lot, and I'm in this, I'm, a, <clears throat> I'm in this like silly Facebook page, it's Craft Beer Professionals, and in this group, the only criteria to get in is that you work in beer in some way or another, right? Craft beer isn't as specific as independent beer. So a lot of people in this group are like, low-key, you know, Elysian reps or okay. Budweiser reps, and they're talking about beer, and they'll come to the defense of anyone who comes in and says that they think Elysian, or they think that Budweiser is doing something horrible, but they'll never say why they think that, right? So right. You can only, all you can ever do is suspect. I suspect these guys work for Budweiser. They like to say things like, um, well, let the liquid speak for itself. You sure. know, if it's good beer, it'll become popular, and, um, and so why are you worried if Budweiser buys Elysian if they are still making good beer? Right. Um, that would be true if they weren't doing everything in their power to crush independent <laughs> breweries. Um, yeah, if they're letting the liquid speak for themselves, they wouldn't feel the need to clog up the distribution chain so other people couldn't get in there. They wouldn't feel the need to, you know. 
constantly, constantly yeah. do pay-to-play stuff, which is illegal. How many times have you heard them getting like a $400,000 slap on the wrist? It happens multiple times a year. That's a penny for them, so they don't care, so they keep doing it. They're constantly bribing people for tap lines, and you can quote me on that. Yeah. Budweiser reps, you're bribing people for tap lines, and you know it. <laughs> it's the worst kept secret in the world. And there's crap brewers. It's not a secret. There's, there's, crap, there's, saying, there's crap brewers doing similar things that aren't, strictly speaking, legal, because yeah. they're, they're trying to play in the same uh, the, the same uh, pond that they're, they're playing in. We don't do any of that stuff. Um, no, like we had, a, but, we had a, we had a, we sort of, we, we sponsored a swim race, a long distance swim race on Lake Nokomis um, this Saturday. So I brought them a keg of beer. Mm-hmm. So all the participants in the race got a ticket for a free beer. So there was about 120 people. It's about 120 beers in a half barrel. I'm like, legally I can do that. But there's still, so there's some gray area there. We can give it away. Yeah, we can give it away. But like, I feel really good about doing something like that. But what we, we don't do for a number of reasons, but you know, not that we're like this big moral authority or anything like that, but I just, I know other breweries give their beer away just to get draft lines. Mm. And like, but I then the word on the street like, is you're a brewery that gives beer away and not everybody wants that. sliding down the path to like, uh, Yeah, it's yeah. not a good precedent no. to set. Hmm. But in turn, like with what I was saying about the Bud Houses, where if you came here during the Super Bowl and you went anywhere near the stadium or the hotels downtown, it was all Bud everywhere. Bud, 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 because they were giving that away because they wanted anytime somebody had took a selfie, anytime they were on camera on TV, there was Bud in the background. There was Bud. They were holding or a Bud affiliated brand. No, there was, there a, was bar, a really yeah. We probably there was a bar downtown that uh, a craft beer bar. Brothers, oh, we're not even talking about that one. It was a different one. My brothers, old one. I have, a, I have a, three brothers. <laughs> one of them lives here. Um, he's been in the restaurant industry for a long, 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 long time. And uh, he said they got a this person bar owner got a fifty thousand dollar check mm. to have. Just to put, and they still bought all the beer. But they just used this they just, money they got I want for free. Your, I want all 40 of your draft lines to be bud product for the entire week of the Super Bowl. Wow. Here's $50,000. That's that's not legal. No. <laughs> no it's not, it's not legal. It's just like, it doesn't, it's, I, it's, it's just market placement. Like yeah. They're just grabbing market placement. There's no way they didn't sell $50,000 worth of beer. Maybe they I doubt it. It's just advertising. It's a marketing yeah. budget. Yeah, and there was this other yeah. one. It was a craft beer bar that was, you know, is known for their local and their craft beer selection. But like, I don't know what Bud offered them, but for the week of Super Bowl, it was all AB products. But there was some this and some kind of loophole or whatever because they had Bent Paddle, who's a brewery out of Duluth. They had like a Bent Paddle trailer out front mm-hmm. in their patio so that people could still get some, Oh, that's some funny. Other beer. That's a clever way so to they probably, resolve that. They probably enjoyed their beer, two tickets to the Super Bowl while yeah. they... Yeah, I don't know. It's in... Yeah. Wow. That whole thing was crazy. But no, so I don't know. Long story short, um, we're always for sale. So if Bud wants to write us a check, <laughs> um, you know, it's got to be a little higher than market value, but we can work something out. <laughs> no, um, no, that's the thing. At the end of the day, like, I don't fault these other breweries for I selling. Do. Yeah. I do. I don't. I, mean, I, I, would, I wouldn't fault them for we selling. I wouldn't fault them for selling to anyone else. I fault them for selling to AB, but that's just me. So Lagunita is going to? Uh, Heineken's 
fine. I don't know. Kind of makes you less mad. A little less. Yeah. Heineken isn't doing the same stuff. Not yeah. not to the same degree. Um, you know, Anchor sold to some like wine importer. Yeah. Cool. I don't know. <laughs> that doesn't piss me off nearly as much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I, that makes sense I, to me. I, it doesn't bother me, to be honest. I mean, I I, I understand your sentiment, and I and I agree with it. But it's like it's it's is America. Yeah. And it's this is straight up capitalism. Well, you don't That's fault why, you don't fault the breweries getting bought, but you like don't buy the because obviously anymore. you would like try to if if you got offered millions of dollars to like say okay I guess I'm out like you know it's hard to say no to that. Yep. And, you know, and, and if you wanted to, you go open a new brewery, right? It's not like you're getting kicked out of your game or anything like, and you're just getting a bunch of money to do it. So it's like, in a way it's the goal. And in a way it's Gotta like, have an exit strategy. Uh, yeah. No question. Yeah. There, I, is there's, there are, there are local breweries that, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't know with any certainty, but like I have to, Looking at their model, they could, that has to be their goal. Is to get bought out. It's just to get bought yeah. out. Mm-hmm. And to Matt's point earlier about, I don't think that, but Rogers not can just keep buying breweries. I don't like, think so. I, at least I, I agree with you, and that I, I don't think so. They'll buy a surly size with good growth in in a in a market. I'd, yeah, I'd be surprised if they bought one in Minnesota, though. I think. Goose Island's too close. Mm, yeah. Close enough. Yeah. Okay. Or maybe they will. Maybe come in and swoop in and buy a from a fifty to a hundred thousand. Who's here? <laughs> There's one brewery in the state that falls in that description. That's certainly. There's nobody else making in that window. <laughs> no. no. Talking about those gaffes. There's a yeah. There's a couple more that are. Fulton's at like 25 or 30. 34. 34. Yeah. Ben Pals at like 25. 25. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. Anything above that, like 20K thresh, distributor threshold, right? Like, isn't there a, a 20K barrel? I think it's, yeah, 25, I think it is. Yeah. Oh, we well, can't, can't, can't self distribute. Can't self distribute. Yeah. yeah. Most yeah, people I, sign up with distributors long before then. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's, it's like, a pain in the, the ass to run your own distribution. Self distributed. Pretty much right up to that. Right up to that threshold. I give him like. A ton of it's running a second man. business. Yeah, it's you're yeah. Ru- yeah you're running a distribution company. Wow. To get that much beer out to the world, you've got four trucks, eight drivers. Yeah. You know, that's a yeah. whole thing. Yeah. I mean, you're making all the margin, but we self-distributed for about a year and a half, so we were a contract brewing. Mm-hmm. So I was importing from Wisconsin, cold storage here, that I had to have. Um, like a whole separate insurance policy for that. And then with my Toyota Tundra, driving bags <laughs> and cases around town. Yeah. So we bought a box truck that was the most jalopy. I think it was scary. Like, yeah, like driving a bowl of jello. You, um, you mentioned a, a term a, a little bit ago that uh, I just want to make sure I'm 100% on. You mentioned Bud House. Uh, is that like just a Budweiser? A distributor, distributor yeah, that's yeah. basically bought out by Budweiser. Well, or? they technically can't own them. Right. Okay. Yeah. So but yeah, there's a lot of gray yeah. area around there yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. Like I will say, you know, things like Cigar City mm. um, out of Tampa. Right. Just great beer. Like they do some really cool stuff. But uh, just rolled into town like, a month ago. I haven't seen them yet. I've seen them on tap. I haven't seen the package yeah, yet. But it's 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 gonna it'll be a flash in the pan. It's we go back to the hyperlocal. But anyways, um, this gentleman by the name of John Taylor, uh, he owns this company called JJ Taylor, 
and the biggest beer seller in the state. Um, and he's in. James they got Taylor's Miller. In they've got uh, August Shell Greenbelt. They got Summit. Yeah, yeah. I think he's in maybe a dozen states. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in Florida, there's a huge mm-hmm. presence in Florida as well. So I was asked asked one of our artisan reps. I was like, "Who got Cigar City?" And JG Taylor. Mm. Oh wow! So I said, "Yeah, he owns part of the brewery," which is again totally illegal. <laughs> Doesn't speak, but it's just he owns it through a third party his, shell company his or his brother's wife. Somebody, blah blah blah. Yeah. Again, I think it's like I don't, I don't fault anyone for that. Like, dude, make money, go be successful. But we operating under this like false pretense. Yeah, that it's like three tier system. It's all right there. And again, like I don't. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't bother me. Once I got used to it, very quickly after we started this, I was just. It's just like, well, that's just how it is. All we can do is try to grow so that we can have more market presence and try to be impactful in that way. We do have a Minnesota uh, Craft Brewers Guild. Mm. I've actually now I've heard, heard mentioned like, the Craft Brewers Guild a bunch of times. So um, they, for a few other breweries, so I know we got one in Washington too. Um, but like, what? Yeah, what is it that they're that they're doing to help you all out that has gotten them mentioned now four times by brewers? The biggest thing um, they do is that we do have a lobbyist at the Capitol because mm-hmm. you need somebody paying attention. In Wisconsin, they almost made tap rooms illegal last year. It was just slid into some bill. The distribution lobby just like tucked it in there and hoped nobody would notice, and it would have put. 50 people out of business overnight, just straight up, no question. And then if, you know, somebody noticed and publicized it and it got in all the news and like people freaked out and it got taken out. But if nobody notices, <laughs> if you don't have somebody there repping you, so honestly, that's the biggest thing is just that there's someone at the Capitol paying attention to what's going on. And then they are advocating and pushing for some changes trying to, like like we talked about, the bombers, trying to raise the cap, because now there's also a cap on growlers. If you're over, I think it's 20,000 barrels, 25,000 barrels, you can't sell growlers anymore. So like certainly can't sell growlers, full and can't sell growlers. Huh. Um, which is a huge, That's huge annoying. revenue yeah, source. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's annoying for me and annoying for them. Yeah, annoying and confusing to consumers who go to the brewery down the road and they can get a growler, but why can't I get you know this one? Um, it just doesn't make any sense. That was another when they when they did the taproom law, they capped how much you know growler production, that kind of thing. Um, so they are trying to get some of those laws changed, and then they they run events. We have uh, All Pints North Festival in Duluth and Autumn Brew Review and the Winter Beer Fest. So they run those, which are really nice, well-run events uh, to promote the guild. They do a thing at the state fair that's really cool, um, where they they have in the agriculture building. You can go and get flights that they kind of curate and pick from. So it'll be like the dark beer flight or the whatever, blah, blah, blah. The Cicerone selection flight, that kind of thing. And you get four, you know, eight ounce pours and they, you know, have Bruce from all over the state that contribute to that. And they do a lot of cool stuff and educational stuff. They run, yeah, they have, they got a lot of resources for making sure you're complying with OSHA standards and you know yeah all, all sorts of those kind of little things that are that are helpful all right so you heard it here support local beer join your craft beer guild yeah 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 <laughs> uh do you guys have do they have associate membership for people who are not brewers they to do. join yeah. yeah they do okay same thing as washington um anyway yeah and you that, to come. Hey, i'm plugging your guild yeah uh, <laughs> and they get to come to the meetings and try and sell us their wares yeah <laughs> um so beer is obviously heavy heavily regulated we talk about that a lot 
Um, if yes. there was so, like, and obviously some of the regulations backfire, right? The three tier system is something that was put in place to help prevent distributors from being able to pick the winners. Um, but it like not, clearly is not working when Cigar City can have you know whatever. Um, and what if there was a way to change regulation, right? I, I don't think you'd want. To, I don't think you guys would advocate for getting rid of regulation of the beer industry. No. But in a way to, what in what ways would you change it that could make it better? You know, keeping in mind the fact that changes you make can be corrupted by Budweiser and, you know. Yeah, I mean, on, on a local level, um, you know, like I said, we have the difference between breweries and brew pubs and we have all these caps on things, like caps, self-distribution caps on, yeah. on growler sales. Uh, we can only have one location. We can't have multiple locations for our tap mm-hmm. room. Um, I would give it all that. Yeah. <laughs> I'd open it up and let us do multiple locations. It'd be nice if we could have like a cider on tap mm-hmm. so you could buy I don't want to make it, but buy from somebody else. You know, if you're if you're a brew pub you can have liquor and wine and mm-hmm. I don't think I necessarily want to have hard liquor, but um, you know, open things up like that would be nice. But Washington you can have guest taps with like cider and stuff. Or even yeah, other breweries yeah. can be it, there. It'd, yeah. it'd be kinda nice, yeah. yeah. Um it's still, you know, the allure of the taproom is, you know, we make it here, but a lot of people ask us about gluten-free and things like that, and we don't really have much to offer other than soda, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? This is, like, I've not really fully, ex- like, explained this to our distribution company, um, and, to, and full disclosure, our, we're with Johnson Brothers, which is the largest distributor in the state. Like, they sell, and they're in a dozen states yeah. or seven. They do states. more more liquor and wine than beer, though. Yeah. But uh, what would be helpful is, and this is the logistics of this would be complicated, but there are bars around here that I know would want to take some of our one-off stuff that our our distributor doesn't want to, and I understand why, they don't want to put every single thing, Matt's making new stuff all the time, but if there's XYZ bar and ABC bar that are like, there's four or five bars within a couple miles of here that we're really we have really great relationships with. So you get our year-round standards. But if I, if if I could roll over there with a, a keg, sell it to them, collect the money, and then just give the money to the distributor, you know, like. But we're not legally. It has to touch their yeah, dock. It has to go to them. Uh, it has to go so through the system. It would be really cool if 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 we could hand sell. Our, our, our one-offs. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. And but well, once you sign a distribution agreement, and this is different in some states too, um, but in Minnesota, once you sign up a given territory, they own that territory in perpetuity. You cannot sell beer mm. in that territory. You can't get out of it unless you can prove some kind of like legal wrongdoing, like they did something really terrible. Like lack of sales is not a legitimate reason to get out of a contract. Lack of them living up to, you know, yeah. promises they made is not, like they can get out of it at any time for any reason they can just dump you for no reason they can sell you to somebody else without your consent they can do whatever they want we can't get out of it at all wow <laughs> I would I would I would like to change that too. that would be nice to I would, relax I would like to, yeah, yeah. guess who wrote that one yeah the distributors I'm guessing uh, yeah yeah and like so like our distributor had a product so it's so I don't need names it doesn't really matter but um that's but not true for wine and cider. For wine and cider. So there was a local yeah. cider company that um, was like, I'm going to go to this other distributor and this is how much you need to pay me to stay. 
Like, that'd be great to have that kind of negotiation power. We, I, we have no negotiation power. No. I mean, yeah. Wow. Once we've signed up. Yeah. So therein lies the, if you can self-distribute for a while, build up your brand and your sales, now they're oftentimes willing to register and give you some money. And although Minnesota is kind of an anomaly in that too, it, it, for a number of is. reasons. And Surly, and again, you know, all the credit to Omar for self-distributing as long as he did. He was selling a ton of beer himself. So then, when he's gonna like, okay, I'm gonna go with the distributor. It was like, who's gonna write me the biggest check? Yeah. And so he had the he sort of had the I don't know collateral or he had the, you know, the clout. Or to say, hey, yeah. I've got this many tap handles. You're going to make Who's your money them? back yeah. <laughs> in <laughs> a few years. Wow. Dang. Oh, man. All right. I love it. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Aaron. How about you go grab a beer? Let's do it. That was Matt and Matt from Lake Monster Brewery. Go check out cyclingcicerone.com slash beer club to give the gift of beer and lakemonsterbrewing.com to find out more about these guys. This has been Washington Beer Talk, and if you like what you hear, you can get other episodes of this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and iTunes. No Spotify, though. Thanks for listening.